0: So open our Bibles to Daniel, chapter 5. In Daniel 5, um, I want to go back and read the last verse of chapter 4, verse 37. And remember, when we did chapter 4 last week, that I told you that the first three verses, as, as he gives his personal testimony, Nebuchadnezzar, he's writing to the entire world about, in verse 3, the great signs that Um, the creator, had done for him. And he had the last verse, says, in verse uh, 37, chapter 4, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heavens and all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Between chapter 4 and the introduction to the king of Babylon, whose name is Belshazzar, um, we have a period of 25 years. And this last verse is going to play in um, a lot to our Bible study tonight. Because what he didn't learn from, it's not his father, it's actually his great-grandfather. And I'll give you actually the list of kings between Nebuchadnezzar and this one here whose name is Belshazzar. So, um, this will be uh, the fall of Babylon tonight. Uh, Belshazzar will be the final uh, king and um, his arrogance and pomp and I don't know how best to describe it. He's he is, uh so full of himself, and he's taunting and mocking God in these first couple of verses. But so that we understand the time frame <clears throat> between chapters 4 and 5, and we read Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast. Let's just um, do a little bit of review. Uh, okay, Daniel. Uh, again, the book of Daniel is 12 chapters long. Um, it's divided up into three sections, and I know I go over this every time we start, but that's how we that's how we learn. Chapter one is in Hebrew. Uh, this is the fall when um, Daniel and his three friends are taken. The second section of the book of Daniel is chapters two through seven, and if you go back to uh, chapter uh, chapter two, verse four. It says, then the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, spoke to the king in Aramaic. So in chapters 2 through 7, we go from the Hebrew language to the Aramaic language because it's dealing with Gentile kingdoms. And then when we get to chapters 8 through 12, it's going to revert back to the Hebrew. So in chapter 5, we find ourselves in... Um, The section that deals with the Gentile kingdoms, in this case Babylon, and uh, how quickly it's going to fall. They're going to go from party mode to complete destruction in one day, and we'll see that before we're through with our study tonight. But let's ask the question, who is this king, Um, Belshazzar, and we're not going to get any farther than that. Before we go to 2 Kings, chapter 25, which is the very last chapter of the Kings, and I'm going to take you to verse 27, and we're going to read. This is how the, the book of Kings, Second Kings, and it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, so this would be in the south, Uh, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon. Okay, so here's the king of Babylon when uh, Jerusalem is going to fall. And this is the king's name, evil Merodach, the king of Babylon. In the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, from prison. So we're finding that the king that would have um, um, been in charge at this time was this guy called Evil Merodach. Now, it is now generally accepted, we can go back to um, uh, Daniel. It's now generally um, accepted that Belshazzar acted as a regent under his father on Nabataeus uh, that's uh, his name it's, it's assumed he succeeded Nebuchadnezzar's reign uh, would be his only son would be this evil Merodach um, succeeded him and that was the year 561 BC and that's where I took you back to Second Kings 25 this evil Merodach was Murdered by Negrel, who had married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and now replaced him on the throne in about 559 B.C. Uh, Nergal was succeeded by his son, who reigned only a few months before he was murdered by Nabodias, the husband of another of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. Nabonidus, the last ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Okay, so who's really ruling at this time is uh, Belshazzar, but is sort of a regent. He's sort of a regent king because the real king at this time is a man named Nabonidus. Uh, but he spent much of his time away from the kingdom on foreign expeditions, and Belshazzar, his son, remained at Babylon as his co-regent. Uh, all this reveals the accuracy of what Jeremiah the prophet had said. Now, if you're taking notes, please write this down because you'll see the order of events and to the son's son, we're gonna have a prophecy now. The prophecy comes, if you're taking notes, from Jeremiah 27, verses six and seven, and this is what it says. So Jeremiah is making a prophecy. It's, it would have been yet future. And He said, uh, the accuracy of the prophet of Jeremiah. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him. And then it says, and his son, and his sons' sons, until the very time his lands come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. In other words, uh, the Babylonian kingdom would last through the reign of the son and grandsons of Nebuchadnezzar and then the reign of the Babylonian empire, this head of gold, would come to an end. So Jeremiah tells us he's gonna have sons, your sons and your sons sons and that's what we have here. All that to say this with the first verse. We're going to read in just a little bit that um, uh, he's not first in line. He's second in line because he's going to offer Daniel to be in third place if he can interpret um, uh, the handwriting that we're going to have on the wall here. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but let's read the rest of the first one. Belshazzar, the king, uh, now we know who he is made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousands. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave a command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lord, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the God of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So what he doesn't know yet is this is the last night. What he's aware of is um, there is um, a mead general and I'm probably butchering his name, Gobiris is the best I can do, that they can see outside the walls of the city. They're actually encamping, uh, the Medes are encamping Babylon. But in his arrogance, he's sort of, um, um, well, the last thing we read here in chapter 4, verse 37, he's flaunting, he's mocking. He's um, mocking knowing that we have the Mede-Persian army outside wanting to get in, and he's having a party. Is everybody tracking with me so far? (laughs) Okay. I want to give you just a scope of the magnitude. And I forget it every time until I get to chapter 5 again, just how huge of a fortress Babylon actually was. And so I went online today, and I tried to figure out some pictures that I could show you I came up with this one and we'll put it on the screen now the reason I picked this one it's just, it's important that you notice that's the Euphrates River there and it actually runs under um, the walls let me just give you a little when you're looking at that picture let me just tell you a little bit about it we have the the city 15 miles square so what you're looking at this is a 15 mile square city the walls of the city are three hundred feet tall okay i 'm just going to stop. let that settle in a second. Three hundred feet tall, and then uh, they when you got to the top of the walls, you could take four chariots and travel abreast around the the, the entire city. So imagine the thickness of the walls, three hundred feet tall, where you could drive four, four chariots and that's the magnitude. And then, remember we talked um, about, uh, um, where were we, in Ephesus talked about the seven wonders of the world, where Diana was. Anyway, one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon. And so the beauty in the opulence and the security that Belshazzar felt even though the Medes and the Persians are outside, what are they doing? Are they worried about it? No, they're, they're having this party and they're praising the gods of iron and wood and silver and so on and so forth. Now, it's important to point out here that the Euphrates was actually diverted by Nebuchadnezzar so that it would go through right through the very center of uh, Babylon and that's what you see here. So that's the Euphrates River and um you can google a lot of different pictures that show the um um an artist's impression of what the hanging gardens uh, could have looked like we really don't know for sure but i forget every time i go and, until i get to chapter 5 um the security and the arrogance and the pride that bell Shazar uh was was having well that's going to come to a, you can leave that up. I'd like to leave that up because we'll be making reference to it again. Um, all that's going to come to a screeching halt. So try to picture yourself at this party. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, let's read verses 5 through 9. It says, in the same hour while this party was going on, the finger of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So here's Belshazzar. And um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes his hand and begins to write. And it says the king's countenance changed. I bet it did. And his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened, I'm just going to let your imagination fill in the blanks here what's happening. (laughs) Uh, That's a polite way of saying uh, he needed some adult pampers, I guess. And his knees knocked each together. So his countenance really did change. And the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be, notice, third in the kingdom. Well, why not second? Because he's second. Belshazzar is, remember, the son of Abanias, and he's just out on whatever. And so he's just sitting in in a number two position, but he's offering now a number three, which is as high as you can get, if you can read the inscription that's been on the wall. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Um... Again, during this time, um, Nabanias would have been out on the field. Why not second to Belshazzar? Well, Belshazzar himself was number two, and his father was uh, really the king. That would be Nabanias. In 8 and 9, um, it says, and the king's wise men came, and they could not read the, the writing on the wall. Well, we're going to have two expressions that we're going to we, that we still use to this day, and um, everybody here has heard the expression, "The writing's on the wall." The writing's on the wall. In other words, another way of interpreting that is, we know what's going to happen, and um, it's only a matter of time. And we use that expression to this to this very day. Babylon is about to fall. The writing's on the wall. They just don't know it yet because it, it needs to be interpreted. All Belshazzar knows is he's freaked out and he's scared to death. And um, I wanna try to tie in because um, my heart goes out to so many people right now. You know how fortunate we are to be able to come here, have a Bible study and fellowship. You know how many people haven't gotten out of their house Um, I think I mentioned this on Sunday our our friend Zev Eisner from Israel called and he just wanted to talk and this was did I share this on Sunday or not okay it was was since then that he called and um, I looked down and what's happened it was Zev and for those of you who don't know who Zev is he's been our tour guide for Israel for I don't know how many years he's 75 now and he says Dwight I'm not doing good I said, it is tough. Um, They were the first to go into lockdown, Israel was. And they're very, very strict. And just, it's been three months. He says, Dwight, I've been here for three months. And I'm just able to see my kids and grandkids just this last week. But I had to stay at least six feet away from them. So I couldn't hug them, I couldn't hold them. And um, as much as I love this man and he knows it, Uh, he's he's not saved. He doesn't have the comfort that we have. Um, I don't know how people are handling this. I mean, if you don't know the Lord or know the scriptures or know that a lot of this is talked about as birth pains, and we have that understanding. But people who don't, um, he just wanted to talk to somebody. And then I handed the phone over to Mary. (laughs) He says, how's Judy doing? And I go, go ask her to talk to her yourself well she was running an errand so I handed a phone to Mary and they talked for five ten minutes and then he handed a phone to Tim and they talked for 5-10 or 10 minutes <laughs> just because he wanted somebody to talk to and that's the state of where a lot of people are at today and depression and um, um, well I'll just leave it at that turn with me to 2 Kings 19 I want to make a point that I'm going to tie this into what I was just talking about 2 Kings chapter 19, and I want to go back to the fall of Assyria. We've been reading this on men's prayer, just this last week we were reading this, and it's the fall of Assyria, and the point that I want to make with the fall of Assyria and the fall of Babylon, here you have world-ruling empires, the first one, Egypt, the second one, Assyria, and how quickly it's going to fall. All right, the Assyrians have already taken the 10 northern tribes in about 710 BC. And now they got their sights on the southern kingdom, Judah, and they want to take Judah. They have 185,000 Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. And they're chanting and taunting them And the people on the wall saying, please don't speak in Hebrew because it's freaking the people out and they're afraid, so don't speak in Hebrew. And they just just taunted him even more. And um, Isaiah came to Hezekiah and told Hezekiah, I don't want you to worry about it. Nobody's, not one heir was gonna make it into the city. And so that night, let's pick it up, so here you can see the prophet Isaiah coming to Hezekiah. And, you know, the odds are what? They're, they're already, we read earlier, that uh, cannibalism had actually entered into the city. It was, they were that desperate. If you're In um, chapter 19 of 2 Kings 19, verse 35, no, let's go back to 32. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. Now his name would be Sennacherib, the most powerful man in the world, with 185,000 troops surrounding Jerusalem. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return. And he shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant's David's sake. And it came to pass at a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people rose in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and he remained in Nineveh. So the capital of Sennacherib and the Assyrian kingdom was Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he worshipped in the temple of Zishrach, his god, that his son, Dabamalek and uh, Shaziar, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Haddon, his son, reigned in his place. And we have now, when you have the king killed, and you have your army of 185,000 wiped out by one angel in one night, you have the, the rapid decline and fall of the Assyrian empire, and that's how Babylon came into power. Now, I brought you here to make one simple point. They were acting cocky too, and they were taunting, and in their arrogance and their pride um, the Lord says, Isaiah, go talk to Hezekiah. Tell him, to, don't sweat it. Don't worry about a thing. It's not gonna happen. But what's gonna happen instead is I'm gonna send him back. He's prophesying the same way that he came down. And, um, and, and he's gonna return to his own city. And we have the leader of the world gone and his whole empire now easily taken over by Babylon. All right, now let's go back to uh, Daniel. And we find the handwriting on the wall. And now Babylon has had its reign. This is going to be the last king that's going to rule. He still doesn't know that this is his last night. He still doesn't know what the writing is on the wall. The question that I will have here is if world ruling empires, as the Lord says, I'll raise them up, I can raise them up, and I can bring them down. And if it can happen to Assyria, or Babylon, or the Medes and the Persians, or Alexander the Great, or the Roman Empire, when we kicked prayer out of school in 1963, it's been all downhill since then. Roe v. Wade in 73, is just a side effect, to where is it today? How many people, we grew up as a custom of just going to church. Even if you didn't know the Lord, you still went to church. Everything was closed on Sunday. Not today. Well, maybe today it is, but it's not normal today. <laughs> but um, um, here's here's my thought. If we've gotten away from the Lord, and I'm not saying that God is causing us or judging us but he is sovereign and he does let things happen so as I look uh, the decline of our own country um, if it happened to Assyria that quickly in their arrogance and their pride as he's mocking God by um, worshipping gold and silver and this is going to come down in one night are we any different? is the question. And I'm not going to answer that question. This is, this is me hypothetically thinking. And I'm not uh, saying this is God's judgment on America. But as I look back at world history, and we've often wondered, where do we fit in in this scenario in the last days? Where is the United States of America that it doesn't seem to be mentioned? Maybe a couple places possibly. But we were the most prosperous and powerful country that the world has ever known. Good place for an amen, because that was our history. And the freedoms that we had, I'm using the word had, because now they're being threatened, now the trash talk is, well, we might make you take this vaccine, and you're not gonna have a choice in it. And now, my First Amendment rights, fortunately, we, have, uh, we had uh, in, in our state, a Supreme Court, that stood up to our governor and said, no, we're, we're rescinding your order and if people want to go to the church, they can, period. And if they want to open their shops, they can, but it's their decision and not yours. But that's, that's it. We're fortunate here. That's not the case in a lot of places elsewhere. So we can thank the Lord for that. But as um, there isn't, effort, and I could really get sidetracked here, to bring down our independent democracy and freedoms and replace it with a one world religion and government. Now you know what I can say that? Because eventually we're going to be in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. That's how we're going to close this study tonight, talking about a one world religion and a one world order. We know that the Bible clearly talks about that. So If it's as late as I think it is, then we should be seeing signs that would force us into that direction. And I have to just ask ask yourself just an honest question. Either you see that happening or you don't. I can't remember the name, we were talking about it in the prayer room, of the organization that's been busted that have been sponsored by George Saros to go and actually incite these riots around the country. They're from um, different states. They're getting paid to do this. It's easy to Google to find out who they are, and um, bug Mary afterwards, because we were talking about it. (laughs) She's gonna hate me for doing that. Um, But this is something you can can easily do your own research on and find out a lot of this is heartfelt, honest protest, given. But a lot of it is being incited. And it's being financed by guys like George Soros is one of the richest men in the world. And um, um, I was listening to Patrick Wood who was here for our Prophecy Conference. He was on Q90, Stand Up for the Truth just a couple days ago. Talking about technocracy. Um, If you want to follow this rabbit trail a little bit farther, just go to the podcast. He was on just a couple days ago. And he's looking at What's happening right now, he's been talking about for the last 40 years. And it's called technocracy. It's a well-devised plan for globalism. And I don't know anybody who's more knowledgeable on the subject than, than Patrick. So um, just you could just go to Q90 and, and um, go to their podcast and they, they, he'll lay it all out for you. There's a whole other perspective on what I'm trying to say that's taking place. A lot of, a lot of it is heartfelt, um, honest uh, protests that, that people are participating in, but there's more to it than that. So more on uh, the one world religion and government when we get to 17 and 18. Verses eight and nine tell us, now all the king's wise men came. They could not make known the interpretation and he, he was troubled. Um, this is the third time this has happened. Strike one, strike two, strike three. Daniel chapter two, they couldn't do it. Last week, they couldn't do it. He called for them to come in to get the interpretation getting chopped down. They couldn't do it there. This is the third time that they're not able to give the interpretation of what's what's happening. So what do they do? Well, let's pick it up, and we'll read a good portion from 10 to 22. Verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever, and do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of, uh, is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, now in, in the Aramaic, they don't have a word for grandfather, so that's why the word father is just used there. Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, it should be great-grandfather, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit acknowledged understanding he could interpret dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar, Now let Daniel be called, and he'll give the interpretation. And then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now all the wise men, the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Ignig- ignig- now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, well, you'll be clothed in purple, you'll have a chain of gold round your neck, and you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, Belshazzar's number two. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, you can keep your gifts for yourself, and you can give your rewards to another. He says, I'm not interested in your silver or your gold. Yet I will read the writing to the king, and I will make known to him the interpretation. O king, now he's going to give him a little lecture, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your would-be-great-grandfather. Remember the 25 years between four and five. And remember the last thing that Nebuchadnezzar said about God. Those who walk in pride, he's able to abase. And Belshazzar should have known that. And Daniel's gonna remind him of that right now. So let's pick it up. Um... You can keep your gifts, but I'll make known to you the interpretation, verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, honor, and glory. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wishes, he executed. Whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him and he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like that of the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like an oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high god rules in the kingdom of men appoints over it whoever he chooses so there's the lecture and now i can sort of see the finger in the face right here from daniel but you his son belshazzar have not humbled your heart and here's here's the dig although you knew all of this in other words you should have known you the last thing the last um, sayings of King Nebuchadnezzar was to the whole world and the last sentence is those who walk in pride he's able to humble. So what's Belshazzar doing? He's, he's uh, taunting, um, blaspheming and has absolutely no fear of the Lord at all and he's walking um, with the Medan Persian Empire just out, out the back. But you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of the house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds And the God who holds your breath in his hand owns all your ways you have not glorified. To whom much is given, much is required. He should have known all these things. You knew about this, Belshazzar. You knew about what uh, um, your grandfather said, but now, and how he got humbled, but now um, you're mocking him, even though you knew all these things. So we have here in verses 24 and 25, the finger of God. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is an inscription that was written. Now before we get to to it, I want you to turn with me to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 8 We have, this is one of my favorite stories, but I come here for one reason. The finger of God in Daniel chapter five is a finger of judgment. That's what the writing's gonna be about. And so what we have in John chapter eight is the finger of God writing again, and it it again is in the form of a judgment. We find that when Jesus came, uh, verse eight, when he came down for the Mount of Olives early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them and then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and when they had set her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman was caught in adultery in the very act I have two questions at this point first of all how did they know where she lived? And second of all, where was the man? Because when you read the law, both were to be brought and accused of adultery, not just one. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? You're known as a friend of sinners. And yet you you um, you claim also to um, uh, say you haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And actually that's true. Jesus did come to fulfill the law. He never sinned once and thought word or deed, ever. And so he did fulfill the law. But this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. And this is Dwight's version, but Jesus blew him off. And Jesus stooped down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger. And we once again have the finger of God writing. We don't know exactly what he wrote, we only see the result of what the figure of God was writing. As though he did not hear them. So when they continued asking him, they weren't going to let him get off the hook. He raised himself and said to them, he who is without sin among you, he can throw the first stone at her. And then he goes back down to the ground and he begins to write again. But this time, I think it went something like this. He went down, and he wrote one of the guy's names that he knew. Remember what we continually said about the Gospel of John? Every time that he meets somebody uh, that he encounters, he will tell that person something about them that nobody else knows. So this is what I think is going on here because from the oldest to the youngest, he goes, and when they heard it, they were convicted now, you can only be convicted if your conscience is seared. So I think he wrote the guy's name, and you go, you liar, and he looked up at the guy. And the guy couldn't look Jesus in the eye, so he said, oh, I forgot to fill the car up with gas. I gotta go. <laughs> and he just takes off. That's the first one. One down, how many to go? And they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, so every time he's writing something down, I think adulterer was one of them. Thief was probably another one. And then he'd just look up at the guy, write his name, thief, and look right through him, and that guy knew exactly what the Lord was talking about. So all of a sudden, nobody's there. They're convicted by the writing and the judgment of the figure of God. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst And when Jesus had raised himself up and he said, um, no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers of yours? Uh, Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, what? Lord. To me, this is what happened to the thief on the cross. Um, He went on the cross as an unbeliever on his way to hell. Something happened in his heart. And he became persuaded. Maybe it was when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, but something hit him here and he was changed. Uh, he had no good works, he never said a sinner's prayer, he was never baptized, none of the above. His prayer was, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, would you remember me? That's the same thing that's happening here with this woman. Something happened where she's watching the Lord put these guys in their place, the ones that were calling for her death penalty, and he just simply dismissed them one by one. Somewhere during that process, she says, no one here, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and get six months' worth of counseling. You really need it. (laughs) No. He did not condone the sin. Not for a second. Go and sin no more. And um, so he's not condoning what she was doing. And uh, he just said, don't do it anymore. This is who you were. Isn't that what happens when you're born again? Uh, Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And here, she couldn't go back to doing what she was doing. And so I I wanted to come here just to give some personal application before we get to the writing on the wall. Why? Because it's the finger of God. We have the finger of God appearing somewhere else in the Old Testament, don't we? On Mount Sinai. And it's the finger of God writing the commandments with the very finger of God, we're told. So let's go back to Daniel, chapter five. And we are finally made it up to what was written, and what we have in 25b is mini, tekel, you and then he says this is the interpretation of each word, and he begins with "mini." God has numbered your kingdom, and has finished it. "Mini," translated here, is simply number, and it is repeated, number, number. It meant that God had numbered the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, We have another saying today, don't we? Your number's up. We still use that expression today. This number's up. Where did that come from? Right here. Your number's up. There is an accurate expression that we also have from Psalm 90, verse 12, we read, to teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Only God knows when our number is up, when our earthly journey is over. There's no guarantees for tomorrow. Another good place for an amen. We yeah, have no idea what tomorrow can bring. And um, so the mini first part here is their number was up. And it's all gonna come crashing down this night. The second one is... Uh, this mini, means is repeated, then it's tekel. And here it simply means a weight. Babylon had been put on the divine scales it has been found wanting. The people of Babylon didn't weigh enough. They were lightweights. God had raised up Babylon and now he's gonna put it down. Why? Because Babylon had not measured up to God's standards. Now, here's one of the places I wanna tie the book of Daniel in with the book of Revelation. We read in the second and third chapters, and this is where we are on Sunday mornings, in Revelation, When chapter two. We'll be with the church of Thyatira this um, Sunday. We read in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation about the seven churches of Asia Minor. There we see the Lord Jesus in the midst of the lampstands which represents the churches. He trims the wick, pours in the oil, and stuffs out those which fall to Light. We talked about Pergamus this last week. And the Lord says, repent or else. They had adopted to the culture. They were supposed to be influencing the culture, but the culture was influencing them. Uh, they were fully into sexual immorality, which was what Pergamus was really, really all about, and pagan and emperor worship. And um, um, he also judges the church today. Matter of fact, the scripture says that judgments first going to start with the house, house of the Lord there's only one way that we can really measure up if we're all honest when I think about this we all get convicted or should be except for one thing and that goes back to the song that we sang tonight on Christ the solid rock I stand everything else is shifting sand and unless it's completely the finished work of Jesus Christ I can't with a clear conscience, stand before God because of my sinful and your sinful nature. I'm quoting here Romans 3, verses 21 through 23. Uh, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all of them that believe, for there is no difference. As far as people go, is God looks at you one way. Either you're in Christ or out of Christ. Another good place for an amen. And then he goes on to say, For all have sinned, not some, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, God weighs the actions of mankind. And if I had to do it on my good works or because I'm in ministry or any other thing, it won't measure up. I will always come short. So, you see, their grace or works, but they are mutually exclusive. One outdoes the other one. You gotta, can't have both. It's one or the other. Now, you will do good works when you're saved, but that doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. So uh, this meaning here, tackle carries with it the idea of being weighed but coming up short. He should have known. He should have known because of his great-grandfather And yet he mocked God anyway. Now he's going to suffer the consequences. Eupharson, the last one, is Perez, P-R-E-S, is a singular form of Eupharson, as is given in verse 25, and means division. The kingdom of Babylon is now to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the head of gold is to be removed. It's now time for the arms of silver to come into place. God is in supreme control over the kingdoms of the earth. Ezekiel wrote, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it will be no more until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. God will continue to turn over all these kingdoms that we're reading about in Daniel. They've all come, they've all gone. We got one more that's forming right now as I speak. And that's the Ten Toes. That's the one world government. But that one's going to come, and that one's going to go too in a very, very short period of time. And that, that thought will be developed more as we make our way on Sunday mornings to and through the book of Re- Revelation. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greek, Rome, and we're watching the Ten Toes come together as we speak. We read, verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. Notice this. That very night, this is all one day this happened. The fall of Babylon happened in one night. That very night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Well, who killed them? And it just tells us in Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now, we still have this up on the screen. I want to draw your attention back over here. While he's getting the interpretation from Daniel and he gets the word, while he's getting the word, what he doesn't realize has happened as um, Gobias, uh, the Median general the ones that were camped outside, what they had done in the meantime is they had re the Euphrates River back to its original and so that the river would not flow through the city of Babylon, and the waters actually went down low enough, and they didn't even know it was happening when Daniel was given the interpretation, but the Medes army was already in the city before they knew it. And they had no idea. How did they get in? Um, well, we can't go over 300-foot walls. How about we go underneath them? Well, how are we going to do that? Well, if we divert the Euphrates River and redirect it to its original channel, that'll dry up, and we'll just go in under the wall. And that's exactly what happened. And we say, how do you, how do you know that? Well, there's a historian. Uh, it's tough to pronounce. Anophian, My best shot at it. The Greek historian describes how they took the city by uh, detouring a channel of the Euphrates River back into the main channel and letting the army flow under the wall of the city. At the very time this banquet was being held, the Medes were marching underneath the walls of Babylon where the waters of the canal had flowed. As I mentioned earlier, underneath the wall of that city had been a canal that had brought water through the city and now the waters have been cut off and channeled back to the mainstream of the Euphrates River. This um, um, Mede general was marching his army into the inner city where the palace was located. History records that he and his men were on the inside of the inner city before the guards had even detected that anything was wrong. It is this Greek historian who recorded for secular history the way in which the Persians and the Medes took the city. Turn with me and we'll close with two scriptures. What in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 21. So let's go there first. Isaiah 21. I'm going to read the first 10 verses there. I find this very interesting. Isaiah 21 are the prophecies against Babylon in the first 10 verses. These are a series of judgments after, uh, in verse 11 it's gonna be prophecies against Edom and then against Arabia. But this one is a prophecy against Babylon. Verse one. The burden against the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me and treacherous dealers deals treacherously and a plunderer's plunder. Go up, O Elam. Besiege, O media. All is sighing and I have made it to cease. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pains have taken hold of me like the pains of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart... Waved, uh, fearfully and frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare to the table, set a watch in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. For thus says the Lord to me: Go, set a watchman, and let him declare what he sees. You ever hear the term "or watchman on the wall"? Here's one of the places it comes from. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkins and a chariot of camels. And he listened diligently with great care. And then he cried, a lion my lord, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now that should draw your attention To somewhere else what I just read. Babylon is fallen is fallen. This is prophesied. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. O my threshings and my grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the god of Israel, I have declared to you. Declared what? That Babylon has fallen. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter fourteen. And this will be our last verse for this evening. Revelation 14, verse 8. Beginning with verse 6, we have an angel that's going to fly in heaven preaching the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. I could get really sidetracked, but well, i got a little bit of time. Maybe I could just touch on it. Um, I believe this fulfills... Matthew 24, I think it's verse 14 or 15, where it says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world, and then the end shall come. I don't think uh, the, we're being successful at, in the world as far as evangelism is concerned. So when the Lord runs out of the, the, the last witnesses that he had have just been killed, which would have been the two witnesses. So that would have been Moses and Elijah, But they've been killed back in chapter, I think it was 11. So the Lord always leaves a witness. And now, who's preaching the gospel? Well, in verse six, it says an angel. What's he doing? He's preaching the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, so that the world is without excuse. And I believe it's fulfilling Matthew 24, verse 15 saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. And that's the first angel. Now the reason we're closing this study here is verse eight and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Word for word from Isaiah chapter um, 21. 21. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she had made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This Sunday, we are with, in studying the church of Thyatira. And a subtitle, if I could give it one, is a, the classic work by Alexander Hyssop called The Two Babylons. This Babylon that existed, and then another Babylon that exists in the city in Rome, and we'll be going there on Sunday. That's also called Babylon. It's a classic. If you've never heard it, if you can still find a copy, get it. It's a classical work on tracing. um, Oh, I can't get, I'll just leave it till Sunday for there. But here we have this other angel, um, the second one, and is quoting um, that Babylon has fallen, and it is in reference to um, chapter 17 and 18, and again, we'll be touching on that on Sunday. So, what do we have in closing? Daniel chapter five. 25 years between chapter four and five, um, somebody who didn't listen to his grandpa when he should should have been. He knew better is the idea, and as a result... Um, in one day, everything had changed. And we now have the fall of Babylon, and what we'll have now is the rise of the Medes and the Persians. So, how does this ver- chapter end? Verse 31 And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. How long did it take Babylon to fall? One night. How long did it take Syria to fall? couple days. After the angel took out 185,000 and Sennacherib hightails at home only to be killed by his own sons. How long did it take that them to fall? A couple days. Babylon won. It's going to happen one more time and um, you can't help but when you read Isaiah 21 saying Babylon has fallen, has fallen that's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 5. But it's also The same wording that's used in Revelation chapter 14 with the second angel. Babylon is fallen is fallen. So what's gonna happen to this world empire? It's gonna come and go. And the good news is when we see that one when we go back to Daniel two, it says it was a stone that came and smote the image and it crushed all of these kingdoms and it became a great mountain and it became a kingdom and this kingdom is going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. And it'll never ever be destroyed. In contrast to all the other ones. Now I'll leave you with this thought. Everything we've read up till tonight is all history. So it, what it's supposed to do is when we read things about, Dwight are you really serious about another world empire coming and a one world government and a one world religion? Absolutely. The scriptures are very, very clear on this subject and exactly what's going to happen to it. And when the Lord comes, um, the very first order of event is his kingdom that he promised David. And that'll last for a 1,000 years. And I'm at my time, so I better quit. <laughs> Let's stand and we'll pray. Oh, Lord, teach us to number of our days. Um, And, Lord, help us be instant, in season and out of season. I know in these times, there's times that we can get depressed. And we know you. And we have a hope. And we know what's going to happen ahead of time before it happens. Even with all that, Lord, we're just flesh. And we know that. We have feet of clay. And we have rebellious and sinful hearts. And apart, Lord, from your saving grace, where would we be? So, Lord, you've made us thankful and as we go out tonight, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy, and pray, Lord, that uh, you'd receive all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Wine of the wrath of her fornication. This Sunday, we are with in studying the Church of Thyatira, and a subtitle, if I could give it one, is a, the classic work by Alexander Hislop called "The Two Babylons." this Babylon that existed, and then another Babylon that exists in the city in Rome. And we'll be going there on Sunday. That's also called Babylon. It's a classic. If you've never heard it, if you can still find a copy, get it. It's a classical work on tracing. um, Oh, I can't get, I'll just leave it till Sunday for there. But here we have this other angel, um, the second one, and he's quoting um, that Babylon has fallen. And it is in reference to um, chapter 17 and 18. And again, we'll be touching on that on Sunday. So what do we have in closing? Daniel chapter 5. 25 years between chapter 4 and 5. Um, somebody who didn't listen to his grandpa when he should have been. He knew better is the idea. And as a result, um, in one day, everything had changed. And we now have the fall of Babylon. And what we'll have now is the rise of the Medes and the Persians. So how does this chapter end? Verse 31, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. How long did it take Babylon to fall? One night. How long did it take Syria to fall? A couple days. After the angel took out 185,000 and Sennacherib hightails at home only to be killed by his own sons. How long did it take them to fall? A couple days. Babylon won. It's going to happen one more time. And um, you can't help but when you read Isaiah 21 saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. That's a prophecy in Daniel chapter five. But it's also the same wording that's used in Revelation chapter 14 with the second angel. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So what's gonna happen to this world empire? It's gonna come and go and the good news is when we see that one and when we go back to Daniel two, it says it was a stone that came and smote the image and it crushed all of these kingdoms And it became a great mountain. And it became a kingdom. And this kingdom is going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. And it will never, ever be destroyed. In contrast to all the other ones. Now I'll leave you with this thought. Everything we've read up till tonight is all history. So what it's supposed to do is when we read things about What are you really serious about another world empire coming and a one world government, and a one world religion? Absolutely. The scriptures are very, very clear on this subject and exactly what's going to happen to it. And when the Lord comes, um, the very first order of event is his kingdom that he promised David. And that'll last for a thousand years. And I'm at my time, so I better quit. (laughs) Let's stand, we'll pray. Oh, Lord, teach us to number our days. Um, And, Lord, help us be instant, in season and out of season. I know in these times, there's times that we can get depressed. And we know you. And we have a hope. And we know what's going to happen ahead of time before it happens. Even with all that, Lord, we're just flesh, And we know that. We have feet of clay. And we have rebellious and sinful hearts. And apart, Lord, from your saving grace, where would we be? So, Lord, you've made us thankful. And as we go out tonight, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy. And pray, Lord, that you'd receive all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.